Good morning, one and all. It's a delight to be here this morning and to share fellowship and worship with you. Uh, Sorry if you're disappointed that Jim is not here. He tried to find somebody about the same height and stature as himself. So Stuart Blythe was disqualified and and I had to come instead. So I do apologise for that. But Jim sends his greetings. He's very sorry that uh, he is not with you this morning. However, it's good to be together as God's people and we have come to worship the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. And tell of all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. We come to seek the Lord. We shall rejoice. Let us bow in prayer together. Let us pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we gather as a community of your people to praise you, our God and our Saviour, this day. Lord, as we gather, we know that Jesus Christ is among us by his spirit of love and fellowship. And we come, we gather, to declare that Jesus is Lord, that God is love, that there is oneness and unity in the Spirit. Lord, we want to thank you for all of your mercy toward us. We thank you for the help that you give us day by day. We thank you for your many blessings. We give you our praise and our worship. Thank you, Lord, for our homes, our family, our work. Thank you for your strength when we feel weak. Your peace when we are fearful. For your hope in our weariness. For your faithfulness in our doubting. And Lord, today, as in every day, in worship and in all things, we pray that you would draw us nearer to yourself and help us to walk more dutifully in your ways. Lord, we come to confess our sins this morning, for you know all about our lives, you know all of the mixture of the good and the bad, the times when we are faithful, the times when we are faithless. And so, Lord, now in your presence, we confess the sins that no one knows. We confess the sins that everyone knows. We confess the sins that are a burden to us. And even the sins that do not bother us. Because we have got used to them. We confess our sins as a church. For the times when we have not loved one another as Christ has loved us. When we have not given ourselves in love and service to the world as Christ gave himself for us. And we pray, Father, forgive us and send your Holy Spirit to us afresh to give us power to live as by your mercy you have called us to live through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now let's join in saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, what in A 
Our reading is taken from John chapter 11, verse 55, and carrying on through chapter 12 to verse 7. The time for the Passover festival was near, and many people went up from the country to Jerusalem to perform the ritual of purification before the festival. They were looking for Jesus, and as they gathered in the temple, they asked one another, What do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he must report it so that they could arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which Martha helped to serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took half a litre of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you, but you will not always have me. Amen. We're in the season of Lent. And uh, during Lent, I think it's helpful sometimes to stop and to reflect on some of the the gospel narratives that tell of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, to death and resurrection. And so this morning, uh, I want to to focus our attention on this story, on this narrative that we've read together from John chapter 12, where it tells of the anointing of Jesus' feet by, by Mary of Bethany. A story that uh, reminds us about some of the characteristics of true discipleship, what it means to be a loyal and dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the setting of the story here in John's Gospel uh, tells us that these were dangerous times in which to be associated with Jesus. Opinions about who Jesus was and what his agenda was about and what he would accomplish were becoming sharply divided. And so on the one hand, John tells us just around this passage that many were coming to believe in Jesus. Many were coming to put their faith in him and to respond to him as the Messiah. Especially since Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead uh, in the nearby village to, to Jerusalem, Jerusalem of Bethany. An event that had happened not secretly, but in the full view and full gaze of many people in that village. Someone who could raise the dead was somebody to take notice of and somebody to pay attention to. But at the very same time as as Jesus raised the dead and many people believed in him, on the other hand, the priestly leaders of the nation became very nervous about Jesus 
And John tells us that they began to plot his death and his demise. They were afraid that this very popularity that Jesus was generating around himself would bring the attention of the Roman authorities upon them and their leadership of the nation. And it might bring reprisals from the Roman occupying force in Israel. They were afraid of nationalist uprisings. They were afraid of the people uh, getting interested in their own independence. And as we see all too tragically in Libya, just at this very time, popular, popular revolts for independence and freedom and democracy against cruel regimes are often met with ruthless demonstrations of power. And that's what the religious authorities in Jerusalem were worried about. If Jesus stirred up the excitement of the people and made them feel that God was on their side and this was their moment to seize the freedom that God was giving to them against Rome. And so the Jewish authorities met together and they decided that even though Jesus was not a bad man, it was better that one man should die than that the whole people should come under the punishment and the discipline of Rome and many suffer. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks prophetically when he says of his plan to the other religious leaders, we will put this man to death. Better that he die than that many suffer uh, and, and are persecuted. And so Jesus was sentenced to death by his own people, by the Jewish leaders. Now John tells us that around this time, Jewish Passover was approaching. And according to his own custom, as a loyal Jew, Jesus planned to celebrate the anniversary of Hebrew liberation from Egypt in Jerusalem with his followers. Now, since it was not really safe for Jesus to actually be in Jerusalem and to be at the center of all of the action of Passover, he decided to locate himself in the nearest safe place, which was Bethany, where he had many friends and supporters. And so great was Jesus' popularity in the village of Bethany, especially in the wake of what he had done for Lazarus, that they organized there a dinner for him in his honor in order to celebrate having this great rabbi and teacher amongst them. And there in Bethany, just six days before a very final and eventful Passover in the life of Jesus, we are told that another prophetic event event like the, like the resurrection of Lazarus takes place and it indicates to us as readers of the gospel here that something quite momentous is about to unfold. Now the attention of the story of, of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus focuses on, on three characters here at this dinner and uh, I want to just explore the story a wee bit by looking at the three characters. First of all, of course, there is, there is Jesus at the dinner. Now, the, the narrative of, of John's gospel, as you read through the whole of his gospel, is structured like a trial. From the very start, it, it's as though Jesus is on trial for who he is, his identity, and what he might do. And the gospel is structured around the, the theme of like a court where people are brought onto the witness stand to speak about what they, they believe or understand 
Jesus to be. And it starts with John the Baptist. You remember in chapter 1 where uh, the religious authorities send people to John the Baptist and say, come on, bear witness, tell us who you are, tell us who this man is. And Jesus has to bear, uh, and John has to bear witness. And it goes on right through the whole gospel, right through to the story in chapter 9 of the blind man, where Jesus heals a man who was born blind, and the religious authorities immediately pull him in. And they say, come on, tell us, be honest. Who do you think this man is? And the question of Jesus' identity hangs over the whole story of the gospel uh, in John. And along the way, interspersed through the story, Jesus is performing a number of miraculous signs. Signs that in the Jewish mind were associated with the coming of the Messiah. And these are Jesus' clues, if you like, to the people about who he is. And so the turning of the water into wine is a sign of the coming of the kingdom. The healing of the paralyzed man of of God's healing intervention for his people. The feeding of the multitude is another sign as Jesus tells the people that he is like Moses, but he is a greater Moses, and he has come to bring them true freedom. The curing of the the blind man is, is the opening of someone's eyes and mind to understand the truth of God's ways and of God's servant. And all of these these signs come to the great climax, to the greatest sign of them all, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, which opens up the way for Jesus to declare, I am the resurrection and the life. And of course, it points on forward to the story of Easter, to his own resurrection, when he will triumph over the grave. And so here at this dinner in Bethany, held in honor of Jesus, We have reached the end of the the seven series of signs that John has given in his gospel. And what we are meant to think about is the fact that the one who sits at dinner like this is none other than the Lord of life himself. The one who has the power over death, who is stronger than the grave, who can summon a man who is well and truly dead out of the ground and give him back to his family. The one who sits at dinner is more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a great man. He is the Lord of life himself. And it was the ultimate claims, as it still is, the ultimate claims of Jesus that polarized people in their response to him and forced people to make decisions about whether they are for him or against him, with him or contrary to him. Jesus is at the very center of all that happens here. And so on the one side, as people make decisions about who Jesus is, we are told that at one side of Jesus at this meal is the character of Judas. Judas. And he is introduced here in the the story in John 12 with, with a sense of incredible paradox. We are told that there was Judas at the meal one of the disciples, and yet the one who was about to betray him. Judas is a mysterious character in the gospel, I find. The mystery of Judas is that he should have been so close to Jesus, 
that he should have been so privileged by Jesus to witness his intimate words and the deepest moments of Jesus' life, as well as his public ministry. And yet, in the end, to be so resistant to the claims of Jesus upon his own life. There have been recent attempts uh, in, in New Testament studies to kind of rehabilitate Judas, to find some way of saying, well, Judas was not really such a bad figure after all. He just kind of misunderstood who Jesus was, didn't really mean to betray him, he just meant to provoke Jesus into certain actions and things. Let's try and find a way of shining a, a good light on the figure of Judas. It's difficult to find that in the Gospels where Judas, we see, especially here, is a man who shows no loyalty, no love, no devotion to Jesus. There is no affection for the one who has been his uh, leader and his teacher since Jesus and Judas had encountered one another. Judas seems as a man who knows the price of everything and everyone, but he knows the value of nothing, not even friendship. And so here at this dinner, with Jesus at the center, we see how people are being polarized around Jesus. And here Judas, the disciple thief, sits alongside Jesus. And soon again we'll sit with Jesus at another table that we're told about in John 13. And at that other table where the Last Supper will take place, we are told that Satan enters into Judas and night engulfs him. And we wonder how that can be. How can it be that somebody can be so close to Jesus, share so much of the intimate life and ministry of Jesus, and at the end of the day be swallowed up by Satan and the darkness. He is a warning to all of us in that sense of the fickleness and the hardness and the darkness that can creep into the human heart. And Judas here stands as a symbol of the, the negative response to Jesus and his claims. The unfaithful disciple. The one who does not learn, the one who does not follow. But on the other side, there is this beautiful picture of Mary. And uh, in a sense, she becomes very much the focal point of this story. Alongside of Jesus. A, a total contrast to Judas. Night and day, darkness and light is the contrast between them. And she is an example of faithful devotion and beautiful discipleship in the way that she serves the Lord at this dinner. We're told at some point, an unknown point during the dinner, Mary moves from wherever she is in the room to center stage and, and she positions herself right by the feet of Jesus. We have to imagine Jesus and the disciples reclining at a very low table, lying down, stretched out with their feet behind them. And she comes behind Jesus and stands by his feet, and then she kneels by his feet. Very dramatically, she opens a jar of perfumed ointment, and she pours it over the feet of Jesus. 
And then having washed his feet with this beautiful ointment, she begins to wipe them and to dry his feet with her hair. It was not just an accidental thing that she did here. It was an action that was full of meaning and significance. And maybe all the more so, I don't know whether you noticed in the Bible reading uh, today, all the more so because in chapter 11 where Lazarus, her brother, is very sick and, and dies, Mary's encounter with Jesus there is very, very vocal. She complains to Jesus that he had not come quickly enough to Bethany on that occasion to save her brother. Why did he not come more quickly? If only he'd come sooner, her brother would not have died. Jesus, it's almost your fault that Lazarus has died. And, and Mary is very vocal, very outspoken, very challenging of Jesus. In this story, she speaks not a single word. Nothing is said. Her actions speak for her as she ministers to Jesus and serves him at this dinner. And what do her actions of anointing the feet of Jesus and wiping uh, his feet with her hair, what do, what do her actions say about herself and, and the nature of discipleship? What it is to be a true disciple? Well, first of all, it seems to me that what Mary was doing was an act of gratitude. We've spoken a wee bit about gratitude and thanks this morning, and that was not accidental. And, and what Mary does here is a, is a beautiful act of gratitude. Mary's response, I think, in part, in part, to the raising of her brother Lazarus to life again. What Jesus has done for Martha and for Mary is more than anybody could have asked or imagined. That Jesus has come and given them back their dead brother. It is wonderful to them. It's interesting that the news of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, uh, th this story does not begin here in chapter 12, but actually begins back in chapter 11 and verse 2. And uh, in chapter 11 and verse 2, we are told that now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from the village of Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, some, something quite clever going on here in the narrative of what Mary does and the way that John introduces this, this action of Mary right at the beginning of chapter 11. Because there it's told as a past event. This is the Mary who did anoint the feet of Jesus. But Mary has not yet in the, in the unfolding of the narrative of John's gospel, we haven't got to that point where Mary actually does this. So now when you read chapter 12 of the gospel, and you come across this story of what takes place at the dinner in Bethany, you're meant to think, if you're reading the gospel for the first time, you think, ah, so that's what John was referring to. That's what he was talking about when he mentioned the Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. And what John has done here is, is woven together these two narratives, these two stories. The story of Mary's anointing and the account of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. And what it shows us is that this anointing 
is very much related to, to Mary's response to what Jesus has done for this family here in Bethany. The family is restored through Jesus. This is his gift to them, to restore them and give them to one another again. And I think this is a point just worth flagging up, this sense of gratitude that, uh, that Mary felt towards Jesus and what he had done. Because I think we would want to affirm that at the heart of discipleship and at the heart of the Christian life is this profound sense of gratitude and thanks for all that God has done for us in our lives. Not to forget, not to neglect, not to pass over all of the ways in which God enriches and transforms and makes new the lives that are given to him. It is a gratitude that inspires our worship and our service to God. This is our deepest motivation for giving back to God our lives and all that we have for him and his kingdom. The sense of gratitude for what he has given to us. It's not surprising in the worship of the Psalms that so often we come across the phrase that is in Psalm 107 as one example. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his love endures forever. And it's what we do when we come to worship on a Sunday, amidst all of the busyness and the rush and the bustle of life, is to stop at least here and now and to say that we will give thanks to the Lord for all of his love and his goodness to us. And to live thankfully is to be consciously conscious of all that we have in our lives, rather than to dwell on what we don't have. Which sometimes does creep into our hearts and our minds, isn't it? The thought of the things that we would like to have, all the material possessions that others seem to enjoy and we don't enjoy, and why don't I have some of that? And it's so easy to be dissatisfied and to be complaining in life rather than to dwell on the good things that God has enriched our lives with. And so I think as well, to live thankfully is to protest against the acquisitiveness and the greed that so easily seeps into our own souls. And maybe is fed to us by the advertising industry, which constantly bombards us with a sense of, this is what you don't have and how good your life would be if you did. We stop, we pause. To be grateful, to give thanks to God for all of the good and the goodness that he has shown us in Jesus. The second element of Mary's actions that I just want to highlight is the sense of extravagance in what she does. Though this story is told in all of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke as well, it's interesting that only John highlights the quality as well as the quantity of the perfume that Mary pours out over the, over the feet of Jesus. We're told that it was a pound, a pound in weight of costly perfume. Judas, the accountant at the table, he's the one who supplies the detail that this, this ointment would have cost 300 denarii, a whole year's wages for a laborer to purchase. And one drop of ointment, of perfumed ointment like this, just one mere drop from the bottle would have been enough to fill a room with its whole 
perfume and fragrance. And here we are told that Mary pours out the whole of the jar and the house was filled with the smell. And some, we might, we might imagine. The whole street, the whole village would have, uh, would have, would have, have known what was going on and would have, have smelt this perfume. And everyone in the house, for sure, would have enjoyed the overflow of her gift to Jesus. One commentator just picks up on this theme of the, of the way of the perfume floating out through the room and through the house and out through the windows and out into the village to make this comment. Once a town that had been filled with the odor of death is now filled with the fragrance of love. And that's quite beautiful, isn't it? When Lazarus was about to be brought out of the grave, people said, oh, Lord, Lord, he's been there for three days. He will stink and there will be a terrible stench. And now this town is filled with the fragrance of love. But there is a beautiful theme that runs through the whole of the the gospel stories that that this picks up on, I think. And it's the theme of the grace and the joy of excess, of excessive giving. We tend to think and speak sometimes of excess as a sin. You know, doing anything to excess is wrong. Enjoy everything, but only in moderation. Excess is, is a sin. But here we see that discipleship and, and a Jesus-shaped life is marked by an excess of goodness and mercy and of ministry. That's why Jesus in his own teaching to his disciples says, if someone says to you, go with me one mile, go with them two. If someone asks you for a cloak, give your coat as well. Don't just forgive somebody seven times. Forgive them seven times, 77 times. This is the sense of excess that the gospel brings to people's lives. To overflow with goodness and blessing and benefit to those around us. Jesus, when he turns water into wine, doesn't just produce one or two small bottles. 150 gallons of wine are produced, which some people find very difficult and almost scandalous. Here is the excess of God's goodness, which he pours out into our lives so that we might become people who respond likewise to the needs of others with a life of excess, of excess of goodness and ministry and benefit. And there is also the sense of astonishing sacrifice here in Mary's gift to Jesus. People wonder how in a, in a poor village like Bethany, which Bet Ani means the house of the poor. How somebody could have possessed such a treasure as a jar of perfume like this. Was it an heirloom? Was it a wedding dowry? This is something quite extraordinary that Mary possesses. And the fact that she gives it all to Jesus is just astonishing. But what it surely reflects is what Jesus comments on elsewhere. Is that the one who loves much gives much. And Mary seems to find no difficulty in making a sacrifice of giving her most precious possession to Jesus in this offering to him. And of course in doing this she's anticipating another sacrifice that is to be made in the near future when it's not ointment that is poured out but blood and water that flows out and a life is given and nothing is held back for the sake of others. 
And discipleship is marked by a sacrificial life, it seems to me. A willingness to surrender what we have for the sake of others, whether it's caring for those who are in need, whether it's giving up something in order to engage in ministry, to give something of our possessions to help the poor. True discipleship, faithful discipleship, as we see it exemplified in Mary here, is a willingness to sacrifice. And lastly, we see here as well as it, that what Mary does is an act of humility. Mary, it seems, is utterly self-forgetful in her actions for Jesus here. Taking the posture of a servant by the feet of Jesus, washing his feet and wiping them with her hair. Doing something that in public was utterly disgraceful and shameful, and yet thinking nothing of her own reputation. She does what she will to show her love for Jesus. And it's very interesting that the word wipe used here in John 12, where she wipes his feet, is exactly the same word that will be used in chapter 13 and verse 5, where Jesus takes a bowl of water and he takes a towel and he washes and wipes the feet of his own disciples. And Jesus shows his love for his disciples in doing for them what Mary did for him. And Jesus uses that example of servant, humble ministry as a way of drawing his own disciples into a life of sacrificial ministry. Do you remember he said, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you ought also to wash one another's feet. And so Mary here is a model of discipleship who already instinctively anticipates the example of Jesus. She doesn't have to be told or taught how to serve. She practices this act of sacrificial love even before Jesus has to teach it to the others. Isn't it lovely in Mark chapter 14 and verse 9 that it is said of Mary uh, and regarding this action of her serving Jesus in this way, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, his feet were made ready for the road by a woman who knew what it meant to love, to serve, to give, without any thought of return, to offer a true example of devotion and discipleship to the one who had done so much for her and for those that she loved. What she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, may God help us to remember the example of Mary and the practical reality of her love for Jesus. And in remembering it, to, to take it into our own lives as an inspiration for service and for ministry, so that the fragrance of our lives may fill God's world with a beautiful odour that is a blessing to others. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story and this example of Mary. 
example of discipleship that so challenges us in many ways in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us deeper into your purposes day by day. Draw us into ways of more faithful and fruitful living for you as disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so may you bring your transforming life and grace and power to those that we meet and encounter day by day. May they see something of the beauty of Jesus in us, his followers. Hear our prayer, for we ask them in his name. Amen.